Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Congratulations. Oh. Happy 200. Oh, yes. 200th. It's our 200th birthday. I think after we finish recording today, we should go and take our chisels and just engrave a little something on the headstone to mark the occasion. I think that's a really good idea, actually. Maybe the back of the headstone. Yes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. You don't want to see the front of that thing. But maybe, maybe we could sort of, with the like, two hundred episode, and then we could list, we could chisel out all the two hundred episodes. I think you're overestimating our chiseling skills, our stonemasonry skills. I mean, that is quite a lot of chiseling, isn't it? And I know this is sort of putting you on the spot, but if I had to say, and it, it doesn't have to be your best moment, but if you had to say, like, what is what is the memory? If I say, close your eyes now and give me a memory of those two hundred episodes, where do you go to? You know, the funny thing is, I think it's you turning up in my front room and before we started and saying, oh, and us having the conversation yes. about whether it would be a good idea or not. I think with hindsight, I wish I'd made an appointment and used the front door. <laughs> and, you know, if I could live my time over again. And what's your abiding memory of it then? I don't know. We've done so much. And when you think of all the people we've had on the amazing ideas around inequality and climate and technology and social justice but mm, it might be that time when you first did your impersonation of bully from bullseye mm. i had no idea that you had that i mean that's... ready to go up your sleeve mm. it wasn't very good actually my bullseye impression it was half-hearted it's... usually you put a lot of gusto into you know it. what it was it's because i did a it's because i did a scooby-doo impression <laughs> for my children the other day and and it's sort of I think Scooby Doo got in the way of my bully slightly. Oh, I see. You know I mean? Yeah, yeah. You need to get Scooby get, out of the pipes before you can really commit. To I, yeah, I bully. sort of. Yeah, I didn't really commit either way, yes. and so that was a sort of that was a sort of problem. I um, I made a list of some shows, and I thought oh, I, yeah. I could um, I could ask you if you think their total number of episodes is higher or lower than ours. Higher, lower. Are you the sort of Bruce Forsyth? Play your cards right. Higher, lower. Yeah, play your cards right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right, let me pick one. The West Wing. Lower. Do you want to go for a number? Um, can you hear hoovering in the background, by the way? No, are you listening to your hoovering CD again? Right, fine. Um, I would say seven series. It's probably too scientific. 163. 156, that's... Really, I mean, that's really pretty impressive. close, isn't it? Postman Pat, higher or lower? Lower. A number? 147. You're very good at this, 184, but you're, you're in the ballpark. Right. Um, Grange Hill. Do, 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 do. Um, I would say lower, and I'd say 120. 601. Gee whiz. I know. Okay, so wrong. 
That just reflects the time that I was somebody who was watching Grange Hill, doesn't it? <laughs> 601, are yeah, you sure yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, I went on Wikipedia before we came on. Do you think there's anyone in there who's listening to our programme that, that, that has watched all two, 601 episodes? Has anybody watched 601 episodes? No, but somebody should do it and start a podcast. Has Todd Carty watched 601 episodes of Grange Hill? <laughs> do you think he carried on watching it after Tucker graduated? Yeah. My my appetite for this, I think, is uh, higher than other people, so I'll just give you one more to finish. Dallas. Uh, now, that is really tricky. Because there was a revival. Say, I think it's probably in the ballpark. Uh, I'd say more. I would say 312. Again, not unimpressive. 357. I mean, that is pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, I came pretty close. I got, I got was wildly out on Grange Hill, but but, but otherwise, um, otherwise it was really good. Uh, well, listen, it's um, you know, it's been a blast um, and continues to be. And, so we've got to, we've got to, uh, yeah. we've got to equal Dallas at least, if not Grange Hill. Yeah, I can't imagine stopping. Can you? No. Also, I just w- wouldn't want to stop. It would just be too upsetting to stop. I know. I know. I know. It keeps our bromance alive. It would be like declaring a breakup, wouldn't it? Yeah, a bromance that podcasts together stays together. So what are we talking about on episode 200 then? 200! There's not really a dart thing no. for 200, is there? No. It's what not. is the sporting expression of 200? Well, there's, there's something we can involve our listeners who've been with us, hopefully, yeah. for all of these 200 episodes. They can. Uh, I mean, let... we might be putting them off by now, but... <laughs> anyway, shall I get on with the business? Yeah, let us know what's happening. This week, we're talking about a major new report from the think tank, the IPPR, the Institute of Public Policy Research, the final report of its Environmental Justice Commission. The Environmental Justice Commission was set up back in 2019 um, by me, uh, to by me, among others, uh, to develop. Uh, that wasn't in the introduction. Joel <laughs> cut me out. Uh, he airbrushed me from history. Success has many fathers, Ed. Uh, to develop ideas for how to tackle the climate and nature crisis in a way that addresses wider economic and social injustice. I was one of the co-chairs of the commission. He didn't airbrush me out. I hadn't read that bit of the intro until I joined the Shadow Cabinet last year. And since it's been chaired by Labour MP Hillary Benn, Green Party MP Caroline Lucas and former Conservative MP Laura Sands. Uh, Now, one of the really exciting things about the commission is it didn't just do the usual thing of taking evidence from experts, but also held four citizens' juries across the country to get the perspective of people directly affected by the green transition. The final report is packed with ideas across a whole range of areas. I actually think what's most important is that they're all underpinned by the principle that we have to focus on the benefits of the green transition and what it can bring, how it can be made to be fair and and prioritise fairness in every single aspect of it. We're going to talk to Hillary and Caroline about those conclusions and some of the policy ideas in the report. And then we're talking to another member of the commission, Paul Novak from the TUC, about why this approach is particularly important for workers affected by the transition. And then we thought, who should be the cheerful person for our 200th episode? And we thought, should it be the Obamas? We could get them on to talk about how they keep the spark of their relationship alive. And they were desperate to they come. Were, they, were de- they were, because they, they, they found out we had this uh, anniversary coming up and they pitched that. I mean, it was quite embarrassing, wasn't it, that we just had to sort of say to them, look, you know, maybe 201 or yeah. 207, but not probably not this week. No, because you know, there's we'll, only we'll... one person we wanted to talk to this week, and we are going to check in with the other voice that you've heard on every single episode. It's our announcer, yes. Gail Lofthouse. We love Gail Lofthouse. We do. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that we did an episode last week in your absence on the right to disconnect. I exercised that right. That's why I wasn't here. You exercise the right to disconnect straight to voicemail. Uh, you exercise the right to disconnect. And my reason to be cheerful is that we obviously have listeners among the friends and family of my staff. This is people who don't work on the podcast. Because as I was talking to them yesterday, they all said to me in unison that their various relatives and friends said, Ed Miliband's got an episode about the right to disconnect. LOL, who does he think he's kidding? How absolutely ridiculous. 
Uh, so I'm sort of, I'm kind of just like, you know, fessing up here that, you know, it's like, I don't quite know what the sort of, you know, it's like, you know, David Cameron on how to hold a referendum or <laughs> you know, Nick Clegg on how to have a good student fees policy or, you know, uh, I mean, you know, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I think I, I, I've been sort of well and truly sort of rumbled here. It's like, but you know, what's really interesting yeah. is that, I've been really thinking about the right to disconnect since we did this episode. The episode has really lodged in my mind. And I was going for a walk the other day and I ran to it into our friend David Joseph from Universal Music, who had also heard our right to disconnect episode. And I had a long discussion um, uh, with him and his wife, Ruth, about <laughs> how you, you could sort of make the right to disconnect happen uh, in your in your workplace. So... Our episode made me cheerful and has given me a lot of pause for thought and a lot of outraged <laughs> friends, relatives and family saying the guy is, you know, what, like, who is he trying to kid, for goodness sake? Have you got any pledges you'd like to make then, here and now, to staff members present and future and reparations to former staff members? I don't. I think I better not make any pledges. I think I might make it worse. What's your reason to be cheerful? Oh, I'm just going to do a quick one. Um my son is finishing his first year of school yes. in a couple of days. And my reason to be cheerful is just teachers. We talked before about how much extra they have done during the pandemic. Not that it should have been expected of them, but what they have done to make sure that kids get as close as possible to a proper education is amazing. And Well, they're a good reason to be cheerful. And do you think, is Gene, is he looking for the, the end of his first school year? I think the foremost on his mind is that he's allowed to go in on his last day dressed as Spider-Man. So I think, is that, he really? yeah, I think that's as far as ahead as he's looking at the minute. Would you have let me dress up as Spider-Man for this episode? We could, we could put you in a very tight-fitting superhero costume, post it online and then do a poll, was this ill-advised or not? Nope. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to talk about this report, which is hot off the press, we are lucky enough to be joined by two of the co-chairs of the Environmental Justice Commission. The, the other, by the way, was Laura Sands. Um, hello, Caroline Lucas and Hilary Benn. And Laura hello. would have been with us, but just couldn't hello. make the time. It was nothing, nothing significant. Good, because I, I had taken it personally. I thought as, you might. As, as I tend to. <laughs> now let let me let me get this straight because I've had Ed explain um, the the commission to me, and the, the, from the way I understand it, Ed did all the hard work, and now the two of you have come in to take all the glory. Is that is so untrue? Is that so untrue? I I was there from the start as well, but Hillary is a later arrival. But he's been very very assiduous. And basically, the, the commission took off after I left. That's the way I see it. Well, I'm the one trying not to take the credit because, yes, I did turn up halfway through. But it's been a great pleasure working with Caroline and with Laura and all of the commissioners. And it's been an extraordinary process. I want to hear a bit more about the, the, the process. So maybe you could tell us uh, a bit about how, how it came about. Maybe, Caroline, your best place to, to start on this and what's been explored and why you thought it was an important thing to be a part of. Thanks. Yep. So this is going back over two years now when when we were beginning to put it together. And and the impetus for it really came from the sense of we all know kind of what needs to be done, but the question of the how to do it was still something that wasn't getting enough attention really. And specifically how to have a fast and green transition in a way that was genuinely fair. Now, the word fair gets banded about a lot and, you know, who could be against fairness? But the reality is that history is full of examples of transitions, whether you think of the end of coal in the UK or you think of Macron's uh, ill-advised uh, fuel duty rise in, in Paris, which gave rise to the Gilets Jaunes. The, the history is littered with examples where transitions happen in such a way that they are not fair and essentially get done on, on the backs of the poorest. So the challenge we were trying to answer really with this commission was very much about how do you make such a fast change and such a such a transformative kind of change in a way that brings people with us, that genuinely is fair, both because if it's fair, then it's 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 the right thing to do, but also because if it's fair, you've got a much better chance of of having that local buy-in. 
And that gave rise to discussions, which I, I vividly remember around a table in, in Ed's office uh, about having these citizens' juries. And I'm just so delighted that the IPPR, the Institute for Public Policy Research, who were you know, driving this, they were really up for these citizens' juries and they really made sure that they weren't just kind of sounding boards you know, to whom you took some proposals and got their feedback. They were absolutely at the heart of the process, identifying four areas really on the front line of change, you know, places like Aberdeenshire that have been so dependent on oil and gas and where there was, you know, understandably a lot of fear around what the transition could be about, or places like Thurrock or the South Wales Valleys, places where, you know, people are in industries where there's going to be big changes coming ahead. And and these jurors have been fantastic. Ordinary people giving up so much of their time. I hate that phrase, actually, not ordinary people. Uh, No one's ordinary. They're extraordinary people. And and they demonstrated that in their their commitment to this whole process. And and Hilary, what what was it about this that that meant you were keen to be part of the commission well apart apart from the honor of being invited to to fill his shoes as look as caroline has just said we have a really practical task facing us i mean in the main with some exceptions people understand that we've got to make a change and being a practical person what interests me is what are the practical steps practical in the sense of the policies we need to follow I've I've likened this to the reverse of the church spire appeal fund. We've all seen them, the thermometer, and as the money comes in, then the red goes up to the top. Well, the task we've got is the absolute reverse of that. We've got our CO2 emissions today, and we know we've got to get them down the bottom to zero, and this is going to be about measuring the progress on the way. And I'm sure Caroline never wants to hear me mention gas boilers again, but I... Um, from the start, I've been saying, well, all the gas boilers have got to come out. So what's going to replace them? And we've got this big debate about heat bumps and insulation um, versus hydrogen. And it's made me think about things that I hadn't really uh, considered before. And then the second is the point Caroline also has just made about taking people with us. Because go back to my gas boilers. I have many constituents, as I'm sure Caroline has, who could just about uh, well, struggle just about to pay the gas bill every month, never mind paying the cost of a heat pump and other changes or a new hydrogen-ready boiler or whatever it is. And unless government addresses that, well, we're not going to be able to replace the uh, millions of gas boilers up and down the country. And it requires leadership, it requires funding, um, and we need to recognise that the ways in which this is done will vary from place to place because places are different, circumstances are different, and putting the tools, the power, in the hands of people so they can get on and do the job. Let's talk about the title that, that's been given to the report, Fairness and Opportunity. Maybe, Hilary, you, you could start. How did, how did you reach this framing, these twin uh, pillars, if you will, of fairness and opportunity? And we've heard a bit about the, the fairness aspect of it. What, what, does, what does opportunity mean in context of this report? Well, that's a really interesting question. Fairness, because we're not going to get there if we don't ensure that it is fair. An opportunity, because we've got to approach this in the right spirit. Now, there are those who say, oh, well, we're all doomed. Um, But that is not a great motivator to make the change that we can now see with our own eyes is necessary. And therefore, I think we have to approach this with a sense of, you know, purpose, speed, enthusiasm. But there are opportunities here. For for instance, if we're going to be heating our homes in a different way, there's going to need to be new heating devices. Uh, Who's going to make them? Well, we should be making them in Britain. Uh, Who's going to install them? Well, clearly, they're going to be installed in Britain. That's going to provide jobs. And I am old enough to remember when the man knocked on the door and came to change the burners on our gas cooker and the two gas fires we had in the late 1960s when the great... North Sea gas conversion took place. And these guys, I think they were all guys, just went down... We don't down believe you're old enough. We don't believe you're old enough, Hillary. I am old enough. I'm definitely old enough because I can see the man standing in the kitchen and I was peering at him, trying to understand what he, what he was doing. But this was a, a, a national programme to enable us to move from coal gas to natural gas. 
Now, this is on a much bigger scale because changing some burners is one thing. Uh, having to put in bigger radiators, insulation inside houses, which I have to say is a really, really tricky issue. It's going to require organisation because it's going to provide employment. And that's why one of the other things the report says is for those industries where we can't keep producing fossil fuels, and that's why we picked Aberdeenshire in particular, people have got to have the opportunity to take their skills and apply them to the industries and the chances of the future. Contrast this to how you feel the government is approaching it. If fairness and opportunity is what underpins the ideas in this report, and it's it's stuffed full of ideas, it's um, it's it's a bold plan. How how are the government approaching this currently? What the government is doing is basically looking at the status quo and just thinking how do we fuel the status quo differently. So how do we change, you know, for example, petrol and diesel cars to to electric vehicles. What they're not doing is seizing the opportunity that is inherent in this moment of massive change, which would be to completely rethink mobility and accessibility. At the moment, we've got a government focused entirely on mobility. How do you get from A to B? Rather than thinking, hang on a minute, how do we redesign our towns and our cities um, in particular in order to reduce the need that people have in the first place to travel? So if you if you turn the question round, if you look through the other lens of the telescope, if you like, then you can think about, well, what about these 15 minute or 20 minute neighbourhoods? What about bringing services much closer to people? How do we make sure that people aren't stuck in long traffic jams for hours on end? Because if if we're simply saying that our vision ends at replacing petrol and diesel with electric vehicles, then we're just missing so many of the opportunities inherent in this moment as well as probably still locking ourselves into huge environmental destruction because the way you power a vehicle is, 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 is part of the issue, but certainly the raw materials that go into building personal cars for every person or every family in the country is, is massive. So we need to be looking at mass transit systems and we need to be looking at how we make public transport much more accessible as well as you know shared mobility schemes and so forth and what support governments can give to that. So I think... In, in terms of what the government's doing wrong, it's just it's it's just not being transformative enough. It's not recognizing, uh, you know, the 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 the, the comparison that, that I made, which which might sound uh, a little overambitious, but I think it's right. Is that after the Second World War, we had the boldness that delivered the NHS, and that was a legacy from that horrendousness of the of the Second World War. And it feels to me that particularly now that we've come through this pandemic crisis, and we've understood both the the level of inequality in this country, which the pandemic has exacerbated, unveiled, revealed, highlighted, but also we've understood that governments can act with speed and scale when there's a shared sense of emergency. They can write off £13 billion of NHS debt overnight. They can house the homeless, albeit temporarily, when there's a reason to do that. They can, for a moment at least, put public health above profit and growth. And that just demonstrates that governments can do big stuff when they need to. And what what better legacy could there be coming out of this horrendous pandemic, as I hope we are, than putting in place the structures and the relationships that would mean that we would have that better relationship with nature and climate and each other going forward? Caroline, one of the key ideas in the report is a, a people's dividend, and we thought it was important to to, to cover that. Could you just explain what is a people's dividend and, and what it means in practice? Well, what I like about this idea is that it's it's trying to ensure that this concept of, of, of justice and fairness is intrinsic to the policies that we're putting in place rather than an afterthought subsequent to the event. So, for example, there's a big debate going on right now, as you know, about carbon taxes and how we need to ensure that we internalise the the external costs of of, of um, so much of our, our, our products and our transport and so forth. And so if you are going to increase the price of, of carbon, then it has to be done in a way that does not hit the poorest hardest. And therefore, you would be looking at ensuring that there is a financial dividend. The money that that carbon tax raises goes directly back to the people who are most affected by it and who need the support to make the transition to something greener and better. Um, so I think it works both in terms of a, of a, a very practical way of looking at, at how you ensure that any kind of revenue raising that goes alongside 
our policies to, to, to put a price on carbon is channeled back to some of the poorest people. But I think it's also about recognising that in, in every policy that we're looking at, whether that is, for example, free buses, free local bus travel by 2025, which is one of the proposals, you, you're constantly trying to make the intervention where there is a direct benefit for people so that, so that yeah, so, so that in a sense, you're bringing people with you, you're doing policies with people, not to them. And, and crucially, you are hitting the, the social justice and the environmental justice issues at the same time. Hilary, just say something about nature in the context of this report. You're obviously former Environment Secretary. The report places great emphasis on climate and nature together. Um, and we can't just talk about the climate crisis and not talk about the nature crisis. Just say something about why you think that's important. I thought that was that was a really important part of the uh, perspective that the Commission brought to this task. Because often there's a lot of talk about climate and then nature can appear to be a bit of an afterthought. But if you want to look at how we have damaged uh, the earth on which we live, um, just look around us. And when you think about it, Every single thing that we have, we possess, we live in, we use, we drive, we see around us has literally come from the soil on which we stand. Everything. And it is part of the astonishing capacity of human beings to take these raw materials and to build the society that we have uh, today, which proves it's perfectly possible to use the same ingenuity to meet the climate challenge if you put your mind to it. Caroline, one big emphasis of the report is this it was very much a participatory exercise, as you said so eloquently earlier on. How should government do that on a permanent basis? Well, one of our proposals is that there should be a a standing citizens' assembly, if you like. I mean, not the same poor people that have to do it for like decades at a time, but there would be a a, a kind of rotating um, group of people that would come onto the citizens' assemblies, much as we have with, with jury service now. And I just think it might give government a bit more backbone and boldness to to invest political capital where it needs to go. But also, you know, one of the things that we've said quite a few times in the report is that, that local people are the experts in their local communities. And there is a wisdom that comes from people's lived experience that you get the sense that, you know, after being in, in, in Whitehall for a certain number of years, uh, sometimes kind of seems to evaporate. So I think, I think you get better policies out of the kinds of inputs that you can get from from citizens assemblies because you're drawing on the wisdom of of, of, of ordinary people who, who who still have a foot in the real world if you like um but at the same time you're also hopefully getting that sense that that people will go along with quite bold policies if they are convinced they're both necessary and fair now we have a thing on the podcast called the jeffocracy uh which is jeff as the benign ruler I've, I've got my doubts about the jeffocracy i've got to say which have accumulated Even though you were its originator actually. which have accumulated over the sort of 200 episodes but leave that to one side um this is probably a bit of an unfair question but if you had to pick one idea from the report caroline why don't we start with you to, to implement immediately what what do you think it would what do you think it would be that really is mean, and I should have remembered the Jeffocracy because I've, I've, I've had the pleasure and privilege of being on your podcast before, and um, and we had the same the same moment of of the rabbit in the headlights. I'm sort of going to answer the question, but not exactly, because one thing we haven't talked about yet is around the whole kind of economic system that is driving so much of the environmental destruction and the climate change that is happening, and. It seems to me that we could be making lots of these changes that are in this report, but unless we actually made the shift to a well-being economy, we wouldn't be maximising the, the real opportunity here and we would still be consigning ourselves potentially to an economic system that is based still on more and more GDP growth. And one of the things in this report is an acknowledgement that we need to use this moment of transformation to put in place a different kind of economy, a well-being economy with different indicators of success. And I just think that although that might not sound as, as directly relevant as saying, you know, free bus services by 2025, it seems to me that the thing that would have the most transformative effect would be if we could have different 
economic indicators for our economies. And if I can be really cheeky and use this to my own um, advantage, can I just quickly flag a petition on the Parliament website, which was started up by a Brighton constituent, and I'm trying to promote it with her. As you know, if you get 100,000 signatures, you get the debate in Parliament. And this petition is exactly about a well-being economy, how we should shift away from an obsession with GDP and move to something that actually tells us something a bit more useful about whether or not lives are improving. Uh, Hillary, over to you. One idea. I'm very attracted to, since you're putting me on the spot, to the free local public transport, because that would be a very visible change. But since you asked me about nature, Ed, I mean, the, the we've proposed this Nature Recovery Committee because I don't think there is a body at the moment in the country that is calling things out and pointing out what needs to change in respect of nature in the same way that the Climate Change Committee is doing. And I think if we're going to give equal weight to the nature of the climate crises, then we need a structure. But as in all of these things, you then need to enable people to make the change that is required. And when it comes to looking after the land, farmers play a hugely important part. But um, people who are lucky enough to have gardens, they play an important part because if you don't cover it in tarmac and uh, paving stones, you let the water drain away. That's my old environment secretary dealing with flooding um, memories bringing uh, themselves to the surface and you can plant plants that encourage bees and wildlife and wasps and others to come back so there's a part for everybody to play this is not about sitting back and saying well the government's got to do it all because frankly we've all got a part to play in making this change happen well that's a good point to end on i'm, I'm going to give you both a chance just as we wrap up to, because I, often our listeners listen to these great ideas on the podcast and then say, well, I feel both empowered to think these are good ideas and disempowered to think, what the hell do I do? Could, could you just give our listeners some advice if they're excited by this and want to be part of translating this report into action? Link up with other people who feel the same. If you've never contacted your member of parliament, your local council, the businesses that you use... Do so, ask them what are they doing, hold them to account, because the more people who do this, I think the better chance we have of making the change quickly. And where you want the tools to do it for yourself in your community, uh, find the person who's got the power and say, would you please give it to me? Because in the end, we'll get there when you add up the sum total of all of the efforts that different people have made. And there's a part for everyone. So that, that would be that would be my tuppence worth. Caroline? Well, I think Hillary has put it very beautifully. Um, so it is about playing your full role as a, as, as a citizen. I guess if people are in the fortunate position of having a pension or a bank account, then there are things they can do to try to ensure that, for example, the pension isn't investing in fossil fuels pension fund and your bank account. Again, the, the, the six biggest banks have got quite a lot to uh, account for in terms of where they're putting their investments, fossil fuels in other countries, deforestation, all kinds of things. So look at where the money's going. And if you happen to be in the lucky position of being able to shift any of that in any way, whether that's your own bank account or a pension fund, then do that too. Well, look, I think having me leave the commission was maybe the best thing that happened to it. Uh, um, you've done an absolutely brilliant uh, job. Two thirds of the co-chairs, uh, Caroline Lucas and Hilary Ben. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. To talk further about the implications of the Environmental Justice Commission, in particular for the just transition for workers, I'm, I'm really delighted to say that we're joined by somebody I, I enjoyed working with while I was on the commission, uh, Paul Novak, who's Deputy General Secretary of the TUC and was a member of the commission. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. No problem at all. Hiya, Ed. Hiya, Jeff. So we should say at the beginning that Paul's got a very fetching TUC backdrop behind him. But but he, but, <laughs> but Paul, come on, let's have the revelation about what's, what's behind the TUC backdrop. Behind the TUC backdrop, I've got a, a, a lovely glitter ball, disco ball, uh, wow. I've also got a couple of guitars, uh, an amplifier. I mean, this basically turns into a sort of 
music studio stroke um, party hangout when it's not TUC headquarters in the north. <laughs> this is it. We, we've had guitars before, but you are our first disco ball. Very exciting for us. Episode 200. Yeah. And our first disco ball. I can see a lovely spot on your ceiling, Ed, where one yeah. would look just great. I think we better move on to the more entertaining and interesting subject of the Environmental Justice Commission. Absolutely. Uh, uh, right. Let, let's start, Paul, by asking this. What... Why is the approach set out by the Environmental Justice Commission so important from your perspective in the union movement? I think three things really, Ed. First of all, it's an optimistic report. And that, that's important because you know, all too often when we think about climate change and when we have reports about climate change, uh, we focus on the big existential threat that faces us all. And that's absolutely uh, right. But sometimes I think it leaves people feeling a little bit powerless like there's nothing we can do about it and actually the fact that the report is optimistic and say not only can we get to net zero but we can get to net zero in a way uh, that addresses some of the big issues around inequality in our country supports good quality employment revitalizes our community i mean that's a really positive message i think the second thing from my point of view is not only is the report ambitious but it's it's pragmatically ambitious <laughs> as a trade unionist i like pragmatically ambitious so you know, it does set out, um, you know, a call for £30 billion worth of additional investment from government year on year. And that's the sort of scale of investment we're going to need if we're going to, you know, really drive towards our targets on net zero. But I think the report is pragmatic. It sets out recommendations that government can actually deliver on. It's not just a wish list of things. And I suppose the last thing for me is that, and it's in the title of the report, isn't it? I mean, the report is people powered. Uh, and it is about saying that there needs to be a dividend, a benefit for ordinary working people as well. And that's really incredibly important for the trade union movement because, you know, uh, there is a real opportunity out there in terms of uh, investing in new technology, investing in infrastructure, greening our economy. But I want to see working people benefit from that investment as well. And Paul, as somebody at the sharp end of this transition, talk to us about what a good green job looks like and how do we ensure that they're secure, well-paid, unionised and giving proper rights to workers? I think my starting point is that not every green job at the moment is a good job. Um, but there is a real opportunity with this amount of government investments, with this focus on uh, net zero, that we can make green jobs good jobs. Now, I think one of the recommendations in the report specifically is that unions and governments and employees should co-create. What, what do we mean by good quality green jobs? And that means not only decent pay, but job security, career progression, a big focus on inclusion and diversity because we want to you know, see the new green workforce being genuinely representative of the workforce up down the country. Crucially for me, a voice uh, at work. Uh, and if you think about some of the green jobs at the moment, I mean, whether it's the people who are retrofitting fitting, uh, insulation in your loft uh, or it's people planting trees or people in some parts of offshore wind, they're not good quality sustainable uh, jobs and what I don't want to see is a replication of what we've got at the moment in the UK, which is lots of insecure employment that, frankly, people can't build lives on. And why is that, Paul? Why has that? Is it because it's not been a priority enough for government? Is it because some of the businesses are making decisions, thinking that they can kind of locate here or offer jobs here which don't have those rights? What what what's the key to unlocking this? All of the above and more, I think, I mean, one of the big issues that I'd point out, which is an obvious one, is that the lack of unions in many parts of the new green economy. And partly this is because they're immature sectors. So, you know, you'll have less union presence in offshore wind than you will in oil and gas. And I think there's a challenge there to unions as well, isn't it, to get out and organise these these new employers. Sometimes it reflects uh, uh, and is exacerbated by the nature of the industries. That we're talking about anyway. I mean, if you think about retrofit and loft insulation, the example I gave before, construction is a notoriously fragmented industry, long supply chains, bogus self-employment, low unionisation. And we've had, you know, government for the last 10, 11 years. And the mantra has been is any job is, is better than no job. And I think actually this is an opportunity to say, no, actually, the quality of employment makes a difference uh, as well. Now, the report proposes investment in skills that are a new, what's called a right to retrain. Yeah. Talk to us about what that might mean and, and why skills and training are so important to delivering a just transition. I think skills and training are absolutely fundamental to delivering a just transition. And I suppose it, in two ways. One, it's about reskilling people in some of our existing high carbon industries. Uh, we know the way that we're going to produce cars, the way that we're going to produce steel, the way that we produce cement is going to change over time. We're going to need to decarbonize those industries. And that's going to put different demands 
on the existing workforce. So in making sure that, you know, employers are investing in skills, but governments investing in skills is going to be important in those sectors. But, you know, we've talked about some of the new emerging areas for, for green jobs. Uh, and, and actually, I want to make sure that people have got opportunities right throughout their working lives to be able to, if they want to, to refocus their careers, to move into new green uh, industries. And, and one of the big frustrations I feel is, you know, I've got three grown up kids it was difficult enough for them uh, getting decent careers advice and guidance when they were leaving school or university. For someone who's mid-career, there's basically nothing out there at the moment, never mind real support to allow people to take time out from work, retrain, refocus their career. So that right to lifelong learning, I think, has got to be underpinned with financial support, access to courses, but crucially the right advice and guidance as well, because you know this is important for individuals, but I think it's also important for, for employers and for our economy more broadly. Do you think that there are enough jobs that could potentially be created to replace and give decent opportunities to people who might be in fossil fuel industries and in the long term will have to transition? First of all, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't write off our carbon intensive industries uh, right now. I mean, I still want us to have a viable strong steel industry and automotive industry and chemicals industry going forward. We're just going to have to invest in the technology and the processes that takes the carbon out of those uh, industries. Definitely. You know, so, you know, sort of invest in things like carbon capture and storage. Absolutely, we can create new dream jobs uh, to fill the gap, if you like, from some of those more carbon intensive jobs. But, you know, it's not going to be a seamless process, isn't it? And we're not going to see one job go over here and one pop job pop up in exactly the same place that an individual can seamlessly fit into. So I think we've got a responsibility to say to people uh, right now, this is the plan for making sure you do have security of employment, security of uh, income. It's no use saying to people, don't worry, these green jobs are coming down the line. Oh, well, they not, might not be in your town and they might not be for a few years, but they're coming. Um, if I was worried about paying the mortgage or paying the bills, I'd want to know what, what my job looked like next week, next month and next year. So I, I think undoubtedly it, that big investment that I talked about before in the green economy can create good quality employment, but we've got to support people and help people transition across. And it's not going to happen by accident. And it's certainly not going to happen if we leave it to the market. And isn't part of the key to getting this right that the workers affected have to be at the centre of it? Um, not just in that they are considered, but that they're the ones doing the considering or they're involved in that and they have agency and a, a stake in it and a sense of control rather than waiting for these jobs to come down the track or someone else making decisions about transition and then pointing them in the right direction. Um, how important is that and how, how do you go about it? Well, well this is the real cru crucial point, I think, Jeff. And actually, Ed, uh... Uh, at the launch of the Environmental Justice Commission uh, report, talked about that sort of mantra about nothing about us without us. I, I think one of the, th the th most important recommendations is in the report is that employers should sit down, a carbon intensive employers should sit down as a matter of agency with their workforce, but with other key stakeholders as well, and map out what their transition to net zero is going to look like. I mean, if you like fair transition agreements, I want employers to be sat down workplace by workplace, talking to their staff about here are plans, here's where you're involved, this is what it means for jobs, this is what it potentially means for new skills. And one of my frustrations often is that we know employers are thinking this stuff through now, but they're thinking it through without their workforce, without the local community, without the customers, without the supply chain. And so I think that putting that responsibility on employers to say, listen, you know, this stuff isn't going to happen by accident. You are already sitting down planning this stuff out. Now make sure that you're involving everybody. You know, we've seen what happens when industrial transition isn't managed and isn't managed well uh, in the past. And, you know, you know, you go back to some of those coal uh, mining communities uh, in the 80s and 90s and talk to them about just transition and they'll laugh in your face because there wasn't a just transition and we don't want to repeat those mistakes. Ed came up with a thing on the podcast a few years ago uh, called the Jeffocracy. He now wants to destroy it, but I, I'm a great believer in this <laughs> utopia with me installed as, as some kind of benign dictator. If I put you in charge of this and, and said, give me one idea from this report that we can implement immediately, which would you do day one? Oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat Jeff and I'm going to link to. Uh, so I've got that thirty billion pounds worth of investment that the report calls for, additional from the UK government each and every year. I'd make spending uh, that, that that government investment conditional on two things: one, does it support our drive towards net zero, and two, does it create and support good quality uh, employment? Because I think the two things have to go uh, hand in hand. So you know, employers are going to have to play their role. 
unions are going to have to play their role. Government can play a really important role in terms of that investment. But I don't want to see taxpayers' money handed out for free. Uh, and then we can measure in five years' time. We should see you know, the quality of work in this country improve and we should also see us making real progress towards net zero well listen paul novak a deputy general secretary of the tuc your work on this is incredibly important including your work with the commission thanks so much for joining us thank you well what did you think i really enjoyed it i thought it was uh it, it was fitting such a milestone episode to have such a great conversation and it touched on so many areas I know we're specifically talking about fairness and the green transition, but it's so many recurring areas on the podcast, like uh, the well-being economy, uh, citizens' assemblies, uh, of course. Um, and I, th- I thought the key thing was in a phrase that Caroline used, but it was, it was central, uh, I thought, which is you have to do policy with people, not to them for this to work and the the process of coming up with this report and involving people in the way they have has yielded so many wonderful ideas through doing exactly that i i think you're right and i think that's the heart of it isn't it um i think it's a really important report and and you know i spoke at the launch and i think it sort of puts the climate crisis in a sort of different frame and emphasises the importance of delivering in the fairness dimension, which I, I, I'm sure is right. Um, and it's also got sort of practical suggestions. And so I think it's really important. And and then I think Paul's stuff on workers, you know, look, none of this is easy, I think. It's really important to say this. It's not like it's, you know, just straightforward. But I think, you know, making sure that workers are at the centre of this not not just in terms of pay and conditions and other jobs and the jobs they're doing and skills and all of that. But I think, again, that principle of participation, I think it seems to me to be really important. But this is hard. I mean, I think it's absolutely vital. Look, the other thing to say is all of this extreme weather around the world, I mean, it only reinforces to me, you know, Germany being the latest, it only reinforces to me that the the absolute urgency on this you know this is this is apart from covid this is absolutely the number one issue putting this front and center um and i think this report is a really important milestone email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com follow us on twitter at cheerful podcast or search for our facebook page reasons to be cheerful podcast planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, as we said at the beginning, there's only one person we could uh, we could invite to say hello on our 200th episode, despite fighting off all manner of international A-listers. It's the other voice you've heard on every single episode. It's our announcer, Gail Lofthouse. Hello. Hello there. Hello there. You say all manner of uh, international stars. Uh, the most famous person I've actually spoken today on my show was um, H from Steps. So, you know, really? oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. It's all happening for me. I, I don't think we've properly explored how Gail came to be the voice of reasons to be cheerful, Jeff. Well, she drove a hard bargain. <laughs> <laughs> it was months of negotiations. Her people and your people. Exactly. I, I yeah, haven't yeah. got any people. I've got no people at all. I think it was just luck. Wasn't it luck? <laughs> I, I have... um. 
I have a friend who'd worked with Gail, my friend Jamie, and so I'd heard Gail a bit on the radio, and then once we came up with a title for the podcast, I was thinking, what we want is a really cheerful voice to uh, introduce the bits, and I thought, I wonder if Gail would do it, and you said yes. I can't even remember asking you and how tentatively, you know, how you, how you had to be managed, Gail, with your ego needed massaging. <laughs> I don't remember. It was such a long time ago now. Wasn't it, really? When you started doing it, I mean, 200 episodes ago, I think I just probably didn't have a lot on. I mean, that's what we were thinking, isn't <laughs> it? Well, that was my situation, certainly. Uh, do you know how many episodes you've done on... You do a daily show on um, BBC Radio Leeds. Do you know yeah. how many episodes you've done? I've got no idea. Um, I've been doing a daily show on there for five and a bit years. 200 is nothing to you, then? No, it's got to, I think it's got to the stage with me where I've done it so many times that some days I'll come off air and like somebody will ask me something about the show and I'll think, was that today? Did I actually talk to that person? Did I play that song? I, can't, I, I honestly don't know. I just I forget everything, to be honest with you. How did you end up on Radio Leeds, Gail? Oh, gosh. I haven't always uh, been a radio presenter. In a former life, I used to write radio adverts. That's how I started out in radio. So I'd write radio adverts and um, occasionally, because the clients were quite tight, they would say to me, they'd say, oh, Gail, I like your voice. Um, would you mind voicing my advert? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want me to, that's no problem. Would you mind doing it for half the price of what you're currently uh, pitching it at? Oh, all right then. So I was cheap. Um, I was available, and I had just just enough of a, a distinctive voice for it to work for a, for a wee while doing that. Gail, what products did you used to advertise? What product? Oh, um, mainly. I think the thing that I was mainly known for was um, was sofas. And uh, I used to do um, I used to do a, a series of adverts for I'll say it because they're not around anymore. It was a company called Sweet Factory Outlets, and they had a number of um, sofa places across well across Yorkshire. They had quite a few at the time, and I played a character called uh, Sharon Fanny Olleranshaw. And uh, and basically, I came up with the strap line was Sweet Factory Outlets take a load off. And because it worked on a number of levels, it was uh, it was very successful for a for a while. So I did. I wrote lo- wrote loads of adverts. Wrote tons did of you get adverts. Free sofas. Did I? Heck? Have you seen what? Have you seen what's behind me now? I'm on a right tatty old thing. No, <laughs> no, I never got. Never. In fact, I don't think I ever got any any freebies at all. Really. And we're in episode two hundred, Gail. How would you assess? Because you're on the radio every day talking to the the nation. What's your, what would you say the mood of the nation is? Oh gosh, um, it's changed so much over obviously the last sixteen months. And um, when I started doing this particular brand of my show, if you like, it started in proper lockdown. People were very cautious. People were scared. Um, people were close to me. They were. Uh, they were very. They were very intimate. The conversations we would often have would start uh, pretty much like, you know, genuinely hope you're all right today. If you're feeling lonely, if you want to get in touch, if you just want to hear a friendly voice at the end of a line, just give us a ring. And people would get in touch about all manner of things. Like some people were, you know, busy building bars in their back garden, having a, having quite a you know pleasant time of it. And there were other people who were really, you know, desperately, sadly losing family members. So... Very sad, very strange for a while. And then, like, slowly, slowly, um, people sort of cheered up a little bit, certainly from, from, my, from my perspective. That sort of, that personal nature of radio has, has maintained. It's just as we've started to come out, I've noticed a lot of my listeners saying things like, oh, I might not be able to listen too much from Monday, for example, because I've got to go back to work. So I'm losing some of my, what we call the slow cooker club, affectionately, because because we were all just using the slow cooker. We were all cooking. We're all having really soft meat for a long time. As it Because often when you're on the radio, you know, you can feel like you're in, you, you, they call it um, audio wallpaper. You're a thing on in the background. And I guess like being on through something like this, you're just 
reminded, no, actually, it is, it is connecting with people and connecting people to each other. Absolutely, never more so in my entire career. I've always felt um, great warmth towards people. I love people. I, I, I love talking to people. Um, that warmth has never gone away, but the, the, there's something been quite unique, I would say, about the connection that we've had in this particular time. And I know it's something that's often said when you're on the radio, but it's true. I feel genuinely privileged to have been part of people's experience and lives. And um, I, and I feel very... And again, something that I know a lot of people are saying about various situations, I do feel lucky for one massive reason from a from a very personal point of view is that I have actually worked every day every day through the pandemic I've gone into work I've been to work every day um my husband has as well so it's been a very peculiar it's been a very peculiar time but like I say I feel about a million billion times luckier than so many other people now, in in the previous incarnations, Gail, you've been in radio partnerships. You've you've done daily breakfast shows, and it's very easy to rack up two hundred shows uh, when you're doing that. So, in some ways, even though Ed and I have been doing this now for um, four years, we're still babies compared to a radio partnership. What do we need to do? What do we need to do to keep the the, the spark? To take our relationship, our relationship to the next we want level. Relationship counselling. Oh, from gosh. you as an old hand at this. I would always say you have to have the utmost respect for each other, even if you don't always agree with what the other person is saying. Because And, and you can't fake that either. That, Do you hear that, that, Ed, all these snidey remarks you've been making about the Jeffocracy, <laughs> trying to overthrow it? Stop trying to overthrow me. I feel proper guilty now. It really has to come from a genuine and real place. And, you know, you can have that banter with each other when you love each other. And, and I use the word love, um, not, not lightly. There, there has to be some sort of love there. But at the same time, you can't be with each other all the time. You drive each other insane. So make sure that, um, that you respect each other, you have an understanding for each other, you kind of love each other despite all your faults. But please... Don't go out with each other all the time. You already spend too much time together and it's, 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 it's close time. It's close proximity. You're in each other's heads. When you just, you know, give each other, give each other, give each other space. A midnight curfew for phone calls. If he wants to, 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 to ring me at five past midnight and tell me about his new swimsuit for his cold water swimming. Oh my gosh. It, it can wait till the morning. Oh my God. If anybody I worked with for me at midnight, I would not answer. <laughs> well, listen, Gail, your voice is in my head in all the best ways. You, you've been an absolute, you're an anchor. For I'm our, a what? For an anchor. <laughs> all right. <laughs> for our partnership. Um, we're incredibly grateful to you, aren't we, Jeff? We are. Oh, well, I'm incredibly grateful to you. Your voices are in my heads as well, because obviously I've heard you. I've heard you every single time. I've listened to every single podcast. You could give me a, a test right now. I'm joking. Please don't. <laughs> I'm sure we could. <laughs> Gail Lofthouse, thank you so much. Ah, uh, thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Time for us to go now. It is. I've, uh, I've enjoyed this 200th episode. Do you think our relationship will endure? I, th- I think we're doing all right. I don't think we're in a rocky patch. No, I, I think, think we're uh, in a. St- I think we're. In, I think we're relatively stable, aren't we? I think so. It's like we're in the first flushes still. Yeah. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Caroline Lucas, Hilary Ben, and Paul Novak. And wasn't it great having a little chat and a catch up with Gail? Definitely. Who is our announcer? She is our announcer. Uh, Emma Corsham produces our podcast. All the research and the, the guests that you hear every week are uh, provided by Joel Pierce with backup from Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. James Deacon made our idents, Ed Seed composed the music, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And for the 200th time, these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.